Well, good morning again. Uh, We turn back to 1 Peter this morning to hear from God's Word. If you weren't with us last week, we began a series preaching through the letter of Peter to these Christians in what is today northern Turkey. And we saw how his title that he gives them of elect exiles is meant to tell Christians about their dual identity as elect, chosen, and beloved by God, but as exiles, strangers, and foreigners to the society and culture around us. And this week we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And what the Holy Spirit does in this text today is He helps us to be better interpreters. I don't mean that He's helping us to be better interpreters of the Bible, although He does that too. But today He's helping us to be better interpreters of our circumstances. God recognizes that we, like the Christians to whom this letter was written, have a tendency to misread our suffering. We misread and misinterpret our suffering when we think that it is a detour on the road of Christian growth. We think of our suffering as a hiccup, a distraction that keeps us from growth and fellowship with God. We actually think that our suffering is a sign that God is letting the salvation that he promised to us slip away from us. So the more we suffer, the more pain and sorrow and grief come into our life, the more we are tempted to think that the salvation God has won for us is being diminished in some way. We feel that we are losing when trials come our way. You'll even hear it in the way that we talk about how things are going for us. We think and talk about suffering like its presence is a sign of things to come. I don't know. I just feel like I'm on a downward trajectory and has really been waiting for things to turn around for me. Or we think and talk like its absence, the absence of suffering, is also a sign of things to come. Things have been really good. It seems like things are trending in the right direction. We are bad interpreters of our circumstances and especially of our suffering. But the Holy Spirit is here to help us. He's going to show us today that for Christians, our suffering isn't a sign of more suffering to come. Instead, it's a sign that God is preparing us for the glory and the joy that he is going to give us when Jesus returns. For Christians, suffering isn't a tool of God's judgment. Instead, it is a tool in God's hands for his purification and growth and strength for us in Christ. And because we know this about our suffering, we can praise God for it. We can live with hope and even rejoice in the midst of our suffering. That's what God has for us today in this passage. 
And we know that just as much as we need our minds to be prepared to hear that, we need our hearts to be prepared to hear that. So would you pray with me and ask that God would help us as we hear his word? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your son, Jesus Christ, and live with the hope and the joy that only he can give. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. We will begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are going to go through each section of this passage, and the first thing we're going to see is the security of our salvation in verses 3 through 5. Then Peter's going to tell us what the purpose of our trials is in verses 6 through 9. And then in that last section, verses 10 through 12, we're going to see the long-established path that has been there since the prophet spoke, that it's suffering first and then glory. So remember, the temptation that Peter is addressing is our fear that our suffering is an indicator of things to come, that God is letting his promises of salvation slip out of our hands. Look at what Peter says to correct us and to comfort us in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first thing to note is that Peter begins by praising or blessing God. Now this may seem counterintuitive since what we are dealing with in this letter and in this passage is the subject of suffering. But this is actually pretty common in Scripture. Scripture again and again in our worst moments tells us that in our moments of trial, in our greatest doubts, in our grief and fear, the solution is not to go away from God and wrestle and work through things. And then once we have those things figured out, come back into the presence of God. No, the way that we are to do things is to actually wrestle with those things in the presence of God. To use the old line from a man named Anselm of Canterbury, I believe in order to understand. Meaning that he didn't set aside his faith and try to figure things out intellectually and then come back to his faith. No, it's in the context of faith and trust and worship of God that we work through our suffering and our difficulties. So Peter starts this difficult letter with praising God. And he's not just praising some random God that he may or may not know. He's praising the triune God. He specifically identifies him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't worship generic God who looks like whatever we want him to look like. We worship the triune God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Look now at what Peter praises our God for. He says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God has done something to us and for us. He has caused us to be born again. We talked about this phrase a little bit last week. That phrase, born again, means that we have been given a new identity. A new life. We have been made into a new creation. We are the beloved of God, united to Jesus Christ and filled with his Holy Spirit. Our redemption isn't just a little benefit that's tacked onto our life. No, it is a completely new life. As we mentioned last week when we talked about God's foreknowledge, this new birth isn't are doing. It's not about something that we've done or something that we've accomplished. Peter says that it is by God's great mercy that we have been born again as Christians. So Peter praises God for this new birth, this new life that he has given us. And then he praises God for what we have been born again to. What is it that our new identity has given us? Look again at verses 3 and following with me. He says, he has, been ca- he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter mentions three things that we have been born again to. A living hope an inheritance, and a salvation. 
All of these things are ways of talking about the benefits that Christ has secured for us. We've been given a living hope. It's a living hope because the Savior who is our hope isn't dead. He's alive. So our future, our final outcome is teeming with life. This is what the Apostle John calls eternal life. It's not just about the duration of life, that it lasts forever, but it's about the quality of that life, the depth of that life, that it is life everlasting. It is life eternal. It is teeming with life. Peter also describes what we've been given as an inheritance. This is in the realm of wealth and prosperity. Last week, we talked about this new life, this new birth, that when we become Christians, it results in exile, estrangement from the world around us. For this world that Peter is writing to, similar to a predominantly Muslim or Hindu culture today, becoming a Christian can often mean that you are stripped of your family inheritance. Peter assures Christians that they have an inheritance that is greater than anything that their family or anyone else can take away from them. And this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The NIV says that it will never perish, spoil, or fade. The reason why is that it is kept, it is guarded for us in heaven where no one can touch it. And then Peter mentions salvation. We often think of salvation only as being saved from the punishment of our sin, which it is, but it is also deliverance from any threat or oppression that comes at us. So Peter praises God that by his great mercy, he has freely given us all of these things, a living hope for the future, an inheritance that will never perish spoil or fade, and a salvation from all that threatens us, including our own sin. And notice that all of these things are ours, but none of them is fully present now. If you notice, in the midst of these comforts, Peter makes some important clarifications about what time it is. I don't mean that he tells us that it's 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. He's talking about time with reference to salvation. What time is it that Christians live in? And then the, this is the first place that Peter mentions this, but it won't be the last because Peter is going to drive home in this letter that you will misunderstand your suffering if you don't know what time you're living in. So before we move on to verse 6, we need to take a little aside to understand what Peter is saying about what time we live in as Christians. Peter first says that we are living in the time after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 3 says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was the dawning of new creation. It was the accomplishment of salvation. However, verse 4 tells us that our inheritance is ours, but it isn't fully in our possession right now. Instead, he says it is kept in heaven for you. And then in verse 5, he tells us that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see what Peter is saying? 
our salvation has been accomplished. That accomplishment happened when Jesus rose from the dead. It is final. It is sure. It is as secure as Jesus is alive. It is a past completed reality. However, that salvation has not been fully revealed yet. It will be at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At his second coming, when he comes again, not in humility, but in glory and power, that is when our salvation will be fully revealed. We have that salvation right now, but we have it primarily as promise and as what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians the first fruits. We have that salvation. We have been given God's salvation in the here and now. We have been born again to new life. We have been made into God's new creations. But we have to understand that what we have, what we are seeing, is only the first fruits of what we will get. We are only seeing the very beginning of the bud opening into a flower in the springtime. The full beauty of the flower of salvation will only come when Jesus returns again. That's why Peter mentions again and again the connection between our salvation and the return of Jesus as a future event. Verse 5 says that our salvation will be revealed in the last time. Verse 7 says that our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says that grace will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. And we can go on and on. Salvation for Peter is already in our possession, but it is in our possession the way that bread and wine are in our possession when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We get a little thimble of wine and a corner broken off of a piece of bread. There will be a day when our cups will overflow with the best of wine and the bread of heaven will multiply till we can't eat anymore. That is a picture of the fullness of salvation that we are still waiting on and how it relates to our salvation now. That's not at all to diminish what Christ has done for us in the present, what he has already given us. Even in this letter, we rejoice that we have tasted the goodness of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 3. We currently have fellowship with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is currently resting upon us in chapter 4. We have been given fellowship with the saints, with Christ's body, what Peter calls God's spiritual house or home in chapter 2. And we, right now, we don't always think of this as a blessing, but right now we have access to the holy and righteous life that God had always intended for us. So Peter isn't trying to diminish, diminish our current experience of salvation. What he is trying to do is show us how much it pales in comparison to the glorious experience of salvation we will have when Jesus returns. We can't even imagine how much better it will be than what we have right now. But the question is, what does that mean about this life right now? Peter tells us in verse 6. He says, in this, that's in your inheritance, your salvation, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
As the church, we live in the time between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and his second coming. We live in a time when salvation has dawned, but it has not yet fully come. And so we live in a time where glory is mixed with suffering. Joy is mixed with grief. Righteousness is mixed with sin. This is what theologians call the overlap of the ages, or the already not yet of salvation. The last days have begun, but those last days have not yet given way to the age that is to come. And what Peter wants us to know, what he presses home again and again, is that this time is brief. In verse 6, he says that our grief, our trials, are only for a little while. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he says that we must conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which suggests that it's just a brief season. And then in verse 10 of chapter 5, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Salvation has come into the world. It was accomplished and secured in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and salvation will come in full when Jesus returns and his kingdom is established on the earth. But we live in between those days. We live when we experience the joy of salvation and the grief of suffering, and both the joy and the sorrow of waiting and preparation. In order to understand our suffering, Peter wants us to understand what time we are living in. That brings us to what he says in verse 6 about the way that we should interpret our suffering as Christians. Read verses 6 through 9 with me. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter, speaking in the Holy Spirit, says that as Christians who have been born to new life by faith in Jesus, our sufferings are not a sign that our salvation is being taken away or threatened. Instead, our sufferings are a sign that God is preparing us to receive that full salvation. God is using our suffering as a tool in his fatherly hands to refine us, to purify us, so that we will be ready for the glory of salvation. Notice that phrase at the beginning of verse 7, so that. Grammatically, so that signals the beginning of a purpose clause. It establishes a reason for what was just said. And what Peter has just said is that you have been grieved by various trials so that your faith may be purified. Your trials, 
your suffering, your pain is not purposeless. God is using your suffering as a tool to grow your faith and your hope in Jesus. He compares our sufferings to a fire. He does this again in chapter 4, verse 12. He calls our sufferings a fiery trial. And fire does all kinds of destructive things. It burns down houses. It destroys crops and fields. It even kills people. But fire also does something good. When fire is put to precious metals like gold, it melts the metal and causes all of the impurities in the metal to rise to the top so that the metal worker can scrape off all of those impurities and be left with pure gold. Peter says for Christians, that is what suffering does to us. It takes all the unbelief and sin and independence that are in us, and it purges them out of us. It grows us. It strengthens our trust in Jesus and even our joy in Him to the point that we are ready for all that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, Peter never calls that suffering good. Suffering is not a part of God's good creation. Instead, it's a result of mankind's sin. And the moment that Jesus returns, suffering will be banished from this world forever. Suffering is not a good thing in and of itself, but in this in-between time, Suffering is a tool in the hands of our loving Father to purify us from all that would hinder our growth. Now, before we move on, it must be said that this is not true for everyone. Suffering is only a purifying fire for those who have a living hope because they trust in Jesus, their living Savior. The fires of suffering purify those who trust in Christ, but they are judgment for those who don't. The Apostle Paul can say to a Christian in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 4, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But God does not promise that He is preparing glory for those who have rejected Him. Instead, the terrible truth is that your suffering now is a sign of more suffering to come. So if you're sitting here today and you do not trust in Jesus, I beg you to leave your sin and embrace the living hope that is found in Jesus alone. He will not end the difficulty in this life. In fact, as we will see in 1 Peter, he will actually increase the difficulty along with increasing the joy. But he will transform that difficulty from the hopeless pain that it is now into a purifying fire. And your new life will be hidden with him. Turn to Jesus and live. But for the Christian... God uses this pain and suffering not to judge us, but to prepare us for the glory that is to come, to purify us, to strengthen our salvation and drive us more and more to Jesus. Again, if we're going to interpret our suffering correctly, we need to admit 
that it goes against our natural instincts. Dane Ortland puts this so well in his book titled Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners. Listen to what he says about what we are prone to think. Our natural instincts tell us that the way forward in the Christian life is by avoiding pain so that undistracted, we can get down to the business at hand of growing in Christ. The New Testament tells us again and again, however, that pain is a means, not an obstacle, to deepening in Christian maturity. The anguish, disappointments, and futility that afflict us are themselves vital building blocks to our growth. Is that how you think about your suffering? Vital building blocks to your growth. It's one thing to sit in here on Sunday morning and think about suffering in the abstract and say, yes, agree, amen. But when sorrow hits in the middle of the week, when bad news comes, when your plans that you thought were to do great things for God and others around you crumble, when your child messes up, When the doctor's words aren't, it all looks okay. When those things happen, how do you interpret them as a Christian? I want to reiterate, nothing in Scripture teaches us to say that bad things are good. What God does teach us, however, is that He is the sovereign Lord of all creation and all events, and He causes all things even suffering, to work for the good of those who love him. So are you able to sing, as we sang in our last song last week, Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. One question you might ask is, why? Why do we have to suffer? Why does God choose to use our pain for our growth? That is not an easy question to answer. It's also not a question that Scripture gives one answer to. But God does give us an answer here in verses 10 through 12. He gives us some insight into why he has chosen that suffering be the route to glory. Read these verses with me, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's a lot packed into those three verses. Peter talks about how we understand the Old Testament, how we understand what the prophets of the Old Testament did and did not know. He talks about 
the Holy Spirit that was speaking through the prophets being the same Holy Spirit who is now speaking in the preaching of the gospel. There's a lot of great stuff there, but I want you to see how Peter relates what he is saying in verses 10 through 12 to what he has just said about suffering. Why is it that God has chosen for our suffering to prepare us for the fullness of salvation? Look at what Peter says about those prophecies in verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What is it that the prophets predicted about Jesus? They predicted his sufferings and they predicted the glories that would follow after his sufferings. They predicted the pattern, the path of salvation that Jesus would walk. Suffering first and then glory. Remember what we read last week in Matthew 16 when Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to suffer and die? Listen again to Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus knew the God-ordained path that was set for him. There would be no glory without sorrow. There would be no salvation without suffering. There would be no life without death. Suffering first, then glory. And what does Peter say now to us? This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Beloved, you have been called to follow Jesus. The beginning of that call is a call to suffer. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we shall be too. But Peter doesn't hide from us what is on the other side of that suffering. Remember, the suffering of this life is but a little while. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the Father, so we too have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is what God has in store for you. That is what he is preparing for you. This is why even in our grief, we can rejoice. If you are a Christian, you will follow Jesus through brief suffering, but on to eternal glory. This is the living hope that we have been born again into. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray again that you would remake not just our minds, but our hearts. That we would trust you in all circumstances. That we would trust in your goodness, despite what our natural instincts tell us to think. And Lord, would we be able to rejoice 
in the midst of suffering, not because of the sufferings themselves, but because of your purpose and your work in them. Would you remake us into the image of Christ? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.